This is Jose Herrera with the O3XX series. Today's episode is a dialogue about faith, resilience, and mental health between Jeremy Stalnecker, CEO of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, and members of the Veterans Resilience Project, Bill Kaczynski and Tony Bovaldi. Over the past 10 months, the founding members of the Veterans Resilience Project, based out of Wilmington, North Carolina, have come together to address the compounding issues within the veteran community and the Cape Fear region. Since the start of this group, the Veterans Resilience Project has been able to map, coordinate, and strategize actionable solutions to address barriers and cultivate resiliency within the Cape Fear region. Today's episode discusses an approach to further reach our veterans. Before our episode begins, here's a little bit about our special guest. Jeremy Stalnecker is a United States Marine Corps Infantry Officer and Iraq Veteran. Mr. Stalnecker is the CEO of the Mighty Oaks Foundation. The Mighty Oaks Foundation is dedicated to helping America's military warriors and their families who are suffering from the unseen wounds of combat, such as post-traumatic stress disorder. Tony Vivaldi is a Vietnam veteran who served in the United States Air Force. Mr. Vivaldi is also the founder of Save a Vet Organization, a 501c3 nonprofit currently serving Brunswick, New Hanover, and Pender Counties. Their mission is to mitigate veteran suicides that happen in the Tri-County area. And finally, Bill Kaczynski, a United States Marine Corps veteran and Iraq veteran. Mr. Kaczynski is the Director of the Office of Military Affairs for the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. We are as individuals, and I was uh, Bill shared with me not too long ago a letter that Tony had written, um, which encapsulated a faith-based approach toward trying to attract veterans, or at least target the veterans that are in those shadows and those dark corners uh, to, to essentially organize and go after those individuals or at least have a, a doorway for those individuals. And I was really moved by it. And so I thought this would be a good opportunity to bring these individuals, yourself, Mr. Stalnick, who has uh, an abundance of experience uh, in organizing and just really living by uh, faith uh, through, through your work uh, with Mighty Oaks. And so I was just hoping that we could generate some conversation that might be able to, we might be able to relay to those individuals that this letter is going to go to within our community. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I'm here to help whatever I can do to just at least encourage conversation, Jose. You go deep fast. So 
you know, you guys are in North Carolina at seven o'clock in California right now. So uh, I'm trying to get my brain around everything you just said. <laughs> I'm going to drink a lot of coffee real fast. But uh, yeah, you're right on target. And there are a lot of ways to approach what's happening. And, and I'm sure that's what we'll discuss today. There are a lot of a lot of ways, a lot of lanes to run down and a lot of good people doing good work in all of those lanes. And I'll tell you, for us, the faith-based lane, if you will, approaching this from a faith perspective, it in many ways, it supersedes a lot of what else is happening <laughs> it, because it comes down to, as you mentioned, who we are as humans, who we are as people, and, uh, and an understanding that regardless of what's happening in the world, we have been created with purpose and design. And if we will focus on that, then we're able to move forward in spite of what else is happening in the world. So there are a lot of ways to help. There are a lot of ways to, you know, whether it's therapies, um, I'm not against medication, although um, I caution on that. Uh, there are a lot of different things that we can do, but the one thing that doesn't change is understanding we were created, we're unique, we have a purpose and a direction. And, and man, I, I was listening yesterday or reading yesterday uh, some of the new um, suicide statistics for veterans. We know the suicide rates for active duty service members is increasing. Um, a lot of that has to do with lockdowns and and such so much going on what doesn't change what doesn't change is who i am and the fact that i can move into that so uh, i love this conversation i think it's great and uh, i definitely think it's a, an all of the above kind of approach so thanks for bringing it together yes sir thank you hey uh, uh jeremy and I'll, I'll let tony uh kind of really expand on this because he's he's just been a godsend in this uh this arena so as Jose mentioned, and we have this uh, Veterans Resilience Project, and we're, we're getting closer. I mean, we have our, our, our vision, mission statement, and kind of our strategic goals and things, and kind of finalizing 501c3. But as we're mapping out all the different nonprofits and organizations that, you know, some are siloed, not all of them are, but, you know, trying to get a handle on this and then kind of create this spider network where maybe this resilience project is kind of the, you know, the middle person that, you know, funnels direction based upon where the need or, or our best, you know, avenue yep. of approaches is, is and so forth. But one of the things that has been kind of missing, and Tony and I talked about this was, as Jose alluded to, was, you know, uh, talking about the churches or the religious aspect of, of being networked into all this, this effort, you know, of, you know, mental health and so forth, especially when we're talking our military population. So I, I said, you know, I, I, re I recall when I was young in a small town that if my father was a business owner, if they wanted to get to the people and have meaningful conversations to address issues that were happening in the community, every month they called this meeting with the various yeah. denominations and it was, hey, you need to understand what your parishioners need to hear and how they need to be coming together. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about yeah. Well, we have every denomination, doesn't matter what denomination we are, but not just having these leaders come together, but because we're churches and, and so forth are located, they're located in, in walking distance or very yep. short proximity yep. to anybody and everybody. And so the other thing that Tony and I had talked about, and God bless you, Tony, for mentioning this as well, but one of the other aspects I think that gets lost in the sauce when we're trying to address this, this deep, dark issue of suicide ideation is, for some of these members, they're looking for absolution. You know, I, hey, I went off, I did my duty, but you know, I'm still trying to process the fact that I took yeah. lives. You know, how how do I 
now meet my maker and, and you know, become whole from, from that perspective. And that's sometimes not talked about, but who best to provide that, that guidance and comfort than those that are in the, the churches. Yep. And so I think that's another important component. Plus when you're in the military, Hey, if, if you're having some issues, Hey, go see the chaplain. Everybody goes, it doesn't matter what, what your background is or anything else, but you have a little sense of, okay, here's kind of my safe space. I can say what I need to say. And there's no judgment, but they're the best listeners. And sometimes that's what's really needed most is just to listen. So that's kind of our, our effort and some of the thought on, on, on that particular uh, aspect of this uh, resilience project. So I, I kind of wanted to kind of set yeah, the stage here, good. but I'm happy to turn over to Tony and let him kind of add in the full, full spectrum here. That's good. Uh, he does it more eloquently than I do. I can't, it's, it's, hard, it's a hard act to follow. <laughs> But he's, he's pretty much covered it. I think um, what, what I try to bring to our conversations is not my own personal thoughts necessarily, but what I learn uh, from speaking to veterans and their spouses and other people. And I've met a few who um, really struggle uh, with this forgiveness issue that, that Bill brought up. You know, they get rewarded for what they do. They get a pat on the back, might even get a medal to display on their chest. You did the right thing. Yep. But they still have a moral injury, something that we don't discuss. We talk about PTSD and traumatic brain injuries, but there is also a moral injury that happens to these people, excuse me, as well. And then they're left to resolve that on their own. So what I learned is, um, they're more apt to speak to veterans who are in the same position as them or uh, their clergy. And I don't care what denomination that is, it seems to be true across the board. So the question is, what are they looking from, for from their clergy that they can't learn from their own fellow veterans, people who are in their own tribe? And, and I'm convinced uh, having spoken to some of these people, that they want to be forgiven for what they have done. I mean, can you imagine taking the life of another individual? Uh, how, do, how do you live with that? Whether that's an enemy or not, it's still a human being, you know? Yep. Yep. And you have to live with that for the rest of your life. So how do they deal with that uh, without having clergy at their shoulder to guide them through that? And then there's an opposite side of that coin maybe the damage was done to them. How do you forgive someone? Um, how does a woman forgive someone who, who's raped her? How does, uh, how does someone forgive someone who's planted an IED and taken off a leg or, or, or another appendage? I find it hard to console anybody in those areas because I'm not clergy. I think they need someone uh, to give them some spiritual guidance in this way and give them the feeling that they have been forgiven or how they can forgive others. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah, that's great. Kind of sorry to lay this at 07 in the morning there. No, 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 it's good. <laughs> no, it's good. I, I appreciate the conversation. Um, Jose knows Mighty Oaks and what we do and and probably my story a little bit. I'm not sure if, uh, Bill, you and Tony do. Um, I'll give you the thumbnail, though, because, you know, Tony, when you're describing coming home, having done some of these things and experienced them, I, I can relate to it. 
because that was my story. I came, I was in the Marine Corps. Um, I, I won't give you the whole story, but I served as an infantry um, officer during the initial invasion into Iraq. First uh, objective of the war was 1st Battalion, 5th Marines objective. That was my battalion. First KIA of the war was one of our lieutenants, Lieutenant Shane Childers. And we pushed from Kuwait across the border, secured the, uh, the southern objective, made our way to Baghdad. That was our final objective was Baghdad. When we got into Baghdad, we were ambushed on April 10th. Um, it, it's known as the Battle of Baghdad. It took us about 12 hours to get to our objective, which was the presidential palace. We had over 100 casualties. Uh, most of those were wounded in action. We had uh, some of our Marines killed in action. Um, it, 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 crazy event, as you can imagine. And then it ended. <laughs> and then for two weeks, we ran around and did stuff in the city. We retrograded back. Um, by June 1st, I was back home um, here in the United States and out of the Marine Corps. Uh, I wasn't out of the Marine Corps yet, but I was processing out of the Marine Corps. July 1st, I was out of the Marine Corps and I was working at a church. So, so that's my story. Um, and, and again, there's a lot behind that, but I was working as um, an assistant at our local church, the church that I had attended. My wife and two young kids had been a part of, and they loved us. And it was a good landing place for me as I was transitioning out of the military. And I was a complete disaster. I mean, it took me a year to be able to have a normal conversation with people. Um, I was super angry. I was angry at home. We we had been married a couple of years. We had two young kids and I did everything short of hitting my wife and kids. I mean, I was screaming all the time, uh, throwing things, you, you know, the story. But then I was doing that at church, too. So I'm working on a church staff, by, by the way, and I'm acting like a complete ass all the time and uh, including at church and in staff meetings and trying to do my job. So, Tony, what you described, I, I found myself in a church context and I'll tell you that what changed that for me was the church being the church, more specifically, my pastor coming to me after a few months and saying, look, man, I love you. This is 2003, remember? So post-traumatic stress and all this stuff we talk about now, no one was talking about it. Yeah. He said, I love you, but I have no idea what's going on with you, but we've got to figure it out. <laughs> and, and maybe that means you go somewhere else. I'll help you get there. I don't know what that means, but we've got to figure this out. He called me out. He straightened me out. Um, a lot of things he put in place eventually got me on track. I won't say back on track, got me on track. And, you know, from there, I ended up doing what I'm doing now. I worked there for a while. I pastored a church for uh, seven years, actually, in the Bay Area. I was a pastor. And then um, in the process of time, we started Mighty Oaks, the Mighty Oaks Foundation. Uh, Chad Robichaud and his family founded it. I came along. I met him as it was getting started. <clears throat> and we just went to work. And so understanding that piece that you just talk about is so central to my story. And, and you're absolutely right. So even in the process of doing what we do at Mighty Oaks, we have week-long programs across the country. Uh, we bring men and women. We have a men's program, women's program. We bring them to a facility. We spend a week talking about uh, trauma, whether it was done to you or you did it to someone else. A lot of the people that we're trying to help Honestly, they came out of uh, sexual trauma as children or other traumatic events as children, brought that into the military. And, and now they have these other events that happen in the military. Now they're transitioning out. They have no idea who they are or what they're supposed to do. We work with that. We point them to an under understanding of God, the creator. But to your point, we do all of that in the context of its faith. It's faith conversations. It's all of that. 
but it's done by people who have the same experience or similar experiences. That's the key. Yeah. All of our instructors have come through our program. All of our platformed instructors, as they say in the military, are combat veterans. So those who are teaching classes, talking about faith, talking about your created purpose, all of these, these kind of higher conversations we have are either men or women who have experienced maybe not the exact same thing, but similar. So to your point, again, it's, it's, it's their comrades, their brothers in arms, however you want to say that, who are having these conversations. But before they leave us, they're with us for a week. We try to get them to make a decision. We try to get them back on their feet. We try to get them to become willing to have these hard conversations with other people. They're with us for a week. We do a couple of things. One of the big things we do is say, all right, if you don't have a church in your community, and it doesn't matter what church, if you don't have a church in your community, before you leave here, we are going to help you find one. And we have someone who's there. And during the week, they go around, do you have a church? Do you have a church? Do you have a church? If you don't, I'm going to find one for you. And I'm going to try to make a connection so that when you go home, you've already started to have the faith conversation with people like you, the wall of no one understands what it's like to be me. That's down. But now you're in a local church community with people who are in your community that can help you with clergy. Again, as you mentioned, people who are trained even as biblical counselors who can come alongside. So we like to take you from you're in an environment with people who get it. <laughs> now let us push you place you, help you get into an environment with people who maybe they don't fully understand your past, but I've never talked to a pastor who hasn't talked to a woman who's been raped or a child who's been abused or a husband who's lost his spouse. They understand trauma, maybe not your trauma, but they understand trauma and they can help you to move forward in spite of that. So uh, I love how y'all kind of frame that because that's exactly right. And so much of that is my story. I grew up in a Christian home, by the way. So faith wasn't new to me. Uh, I just left it somewhere in Iraq and it took me a long time to get it back, but it took the church really coming around me and saying, all right, we've got a path and, and we'll, we'll help you get there. Well, I really, I really appreciate what you said here, but I do have a question before we go far. How are you now? Yeah. So I always, it's funny you asked that question. I always told my, uh, told people or tell people, it took me about a year to get back on my feet. And my wife, if she's there, even if it's a public, if I'm speaking publicly, she'll say, it took you 10 years to get back on your feet, right? <laughs> um, there is an aspect of, of growth that comes out of that, certainly. And um, I think probably the biggest thing it's done for me is it's, first of all, it caused me to be compassionate toward others. I would have said post-traumatic stress and combat trauma and all this stuff. It's all, it's all silly. It doesn't exist until I lived through it. And then um, it gave me the opportunity to do the work that I'm doing now. So I think we all deal with things, but um, to the extent a person can be healthy, um, I believe I am. And, and a big part of that is because of years of building, but more importantly, really leaning into, you know, faith and, and who I believe I was created to be. Thank you, sir. That makes, that makes your story more impactful. Jeremy, mm. one of the other add-ons that um, I did when Tony submitted the uh, kind of write-up and what we were kind of looking at doing was, a good friend of mine is the sheriff here, and he happens to be president of the North Carolina Sheriff's Association. Yeah. But Sheriff McMahon is um, a man of deep faith. But he said, Bill, this is spot on. I've been trying to do something where we're organizing with our religious leaders locally because I have the same issues with my deputies as well as the chief of police has here in town with our first responders. They're, they see and do things. And 
they're exhibiting the same issues and how do we get all these folks? So I think we have, you know, an opportunity that not only addresses our men and women who have served, but also our first responders as well yeah. in almost the same capacity. So, yeah. Uh, and I, again, so when we started the mighty Oaks foundation, we started for combat veterans, 2012, um, things were super broken <laughs> as you, as you know, and uh, young men in particular were coming home with just nowhere to land. And so that's why we started. Um, what year was it? Two, I'm trying to think. Maybe it was 17, 2017. We had a, a first responder. He was actually on the national response team. So he had been to like um, the Twin Towers and some of those things. Complete disaster. He was a friend of a friend and said, hey, this guy's a first responder. He hasn't served in the military, but so much of what you talk about is exactly what he's dealing with. We, we haven't come. Um, and so from that birth, the first responders program, I think this year we have or have had four or five sessions specific to first responders. And now um, first responders are included even in our veterans uh, sessions. So yeah, it's, it's funny at first when that, ha when we, when we had that question, I was like, ah, I'm not sure, man, there's just so much, you know, it's like a real closed environment, the veteran community, um, but not with law enforcement, particularly and, and fire as well. So yeah, that's, you're absolutely right. And that's, that's a fight we've been fighting for a long time. Yeah. I'd like to, uh, say just a, a few things in regards to your, to your story. Um, seems that these days that this particular approach to just overall daily living, um, is, is being attacked. Um, and I often say, I often use a, a word in philosophy called incommensurability, which is just a nice way of saying that there's no more standards of living. And it seems that it's become very compartmentalized and in and, and various demographics across across the country. And uh, religion is kind of like an organic part of my life. Um, I lived in San Antonio uh, from 87 to 93. My family was taken um, in, in, in secret at night by a church, um, partly because my father was doing some stuff that he wanted to get out of. And uh, they took him, they hit him. And they took us in and I grew up in a very religious, non-denominational background, but very Protestant based. And uh, that always, that always followed with me. And even in the Marine Corps, I was a, I was a lay person. I was the, the lay leader in boot camp and throughout all that. And then I was a ground pounder. I was an 0311. I did three tours and uh, it wasn't until my third tour where that idea of faith came back in. My squad leader was killed. Uh, an IED took his life. And I remember right after that, three days, right after that, for three days, I just, every step that I took, I felt like I was going to get blown up. Mm. And the only thing that I could really get a hold of or grasp was the idea that I didn't want to fail my guys. So every time I pushed out on a patrol till the end of that deployment, um, my number one thing was, God, whatever you do, don't let me fail these guys. That was the one thing that I held on to. And even today, that sticks with me. My, my dad's a pastor in New Mexico. He runs a men's organization through a faith-based approach. And he, and he deals with it through the civilian sector side of things. And, uh, you know, the message that I have really for guys who are listening into this, who will listen in on this, is it's okay. It's okay to look at this or maybe try this out. 
And if there's a barrier, it, it doesn't make you less of a person or it doesn't have to be in conflict with political ideals or ideals of just daily society or just regular society. And I think that's, you know, for at least my generation, it seems that there's a lot of young men today that are either one going down that route because they're finding it to be a kind of constant that has always been there. And that's kind of a, a surprise to me, uh, even though we have, you know, this meta crisis that's, you know, beholding us all right now. So I, I'm, I'm glad to see that that is happening. At least individuals from, from my community are moving down that route. But I do feel that there is a large resistance to approaching um, mental health or just overall health in general with, with a faith-based approach. And I was wondering, uh, Mr. Soudnicker, if you could maybe define uh, or talk a little bit about a little bit more in depth about what that means in terms of just having faith or what faith is in this context. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point, Jose. I, I mean, that's a fantastic point. And I will um, just affirm what you said, that when you put faith on the front end of a conversation, there are a lot of people who are immediately turned off to the rest of the conversation. And that's that's one of the struggles. In fact, um, you know, we made a decision years ago that we were going to work really hard to raise enough money <laughs> to cover the cost of the program. So there's no cost to cover the travel to the program. So literally for a person to attend our program, there is no financial output. And the reason we did that is because of the faith barrier in many ways, because we wanted to say, look, the only thing it's going to cost you is a week. So if you get to the end of the week and it didn't help you, then you're really not out anything. And you went to a nice place. And so that was a big part of it, that, that, that barrier that a lot of people have in their minds. Um, and that's why for the veteran community in so many ways, you need veterans or service members or in the first responder community, first responders who have attended a program like ours, who have, um, we'll just say who have gone through a process of understanding faith and move forward in that, who are then reaching back or reaching out to the people that they know, whether they work with them now or they've served with them. Uh, word of mouth that taking personal responsibility and ownership for uh, your role, it doesn't end. I I've said this many, many times. It took me about 10 years to figure out that when I put the uniform back in my closet for the last time, my service didn't end. It may have ended to my country, but it didn't end to the, the Marines that I served with. Um, I, I was sitting with a, a group of Marines 10 years after we came back from Iraq, and uh, I started to hear stories of some of these guys that went back to places like Fallujah, others who took their lives when they came home. And, and, and for the first time, I realized my, my time serving them doesn't end. So I say all of that to say the way that we can reach men and women with a faith-based approach, if you will, very broadly spoken, is by saying... Uh, I know you've tried other things. I did this. It worked for me. I found some hope. I found some direction. Whatever the case, why don't you try it? And one of the things that we'll say at our program is if what you're doing isn't working, maybe it's time, time to try something new. If what you're doing isn't working, why don't you try something new? And it, that's got to be the message. It's a question of, do you want to get better? And if you've tried all of these things, you've tried medication, you've tried therapies, you've tried all this stuff, and you're still not where you need to be in your relationships or in your life. You, you still lack hope. Let's try something else. Let's try it together. Uh, we're not sending you to church camp. We're not sending you to a, a men's meeting, even at a local church where you don't know anyone and they don't know you. We're saying go to a place where there are a lot of people just like you 
with backgrounds just like yours and walk through that together and and see what you come up with on the other side but and that, that wasn't your that wasn't your question but and that, can i make a point here please and if it's controversial please don't like me less <laughs> <laughs> so one thing we have to recognize here is there's a there can be a difference between faith and religion and, and i'd like to address what jose was saying yeah i think I can only be direct. I have no other way to, to do this. I've found be. that's the very best way to be. Yeah. So there are a lot of people who are turned off by religion. Sure. There's things that happen within certain denominations that just empty the pews. And I don't have to be specific about that. Just read the news and, and, and you, you know what I'm talking about. But that doesn't diminish a person's faith. Right. So there could be... Um, personal connections with their maker. They they have their own relationship with their maker. So sometimes what we do uh, is we tend to bring the religion, make the religion come first before the faith. And I mm -hmm. think we need to be addressing their faith regardless of what religion they ascribe to or don't ascribe to. Yeah. If they believe there is a maker and they're having trouble with their relationship because they feel they're not going to be able to get through the pearly gates for what they've done. We need to address their faith. Correct. So uh, I, I don't know that uh, putting them in a specific community. I, I like what you said uh, last there. If this doesn't work for you, go to people who've been there, done that. Right. You know, so if you have faith-based Marines in uh, available to you that's the way to go in my opinion yeah. when it comes to the pastors and the clergy i think uh, we need to take uh, what's called the train the trainer approach mm, sure so that we get these clergy to understand a little more about these particular members of their of their flock mm. and they can address them from from faith yeah. uh, as opposed to the rigorous of religion. I, I, I hope that didn't offend anybody. You're exactly right. And, you know, Jose's question was about faith. So what is faith? And when we approach this, we don't approach it from a denominational position. Now we'll get to that. I mean, we'll have that conversation. This is what we believe because we all believe specific things and different things, but we don't ever start there. We start with, look, we believe very basically that God is, there's God. <laughs> And if God is, then we also from that extrapolate that he created us. And if he created us, then he created us with purpose. So what we're going to talk about, when we talk about faith, what we're going to talk about is uh, trusting that God who created us with purpose has not abandoned us and that we can, understanding that purpose, begin to move toward that. So what it does is it gives a target for people who are all over the place. I don't know how to feel about this. I don't know what to think about that. Um, my relationships, addictions, you know, all these these things that come along with with trauma, whether it's combat related or otherwise. And, and what we're saying is we can deal with all of that, but you need to be moving in the right direction first. So let's talk about faith. And people hear us say that we have a faith based program and what they what they take from that is you have a Christian program. Well, we do have a, a program <laughs> run by Christian people, but 
I would say probably 80%, 75% of the students who attend our program. We've had 4,000 people come through our program. We have 35 weeks of program this year. Um, so we do this a lot. Probably you know, 75 or 80% of those who attend are not Christians. They would say they don't either believe in God or they're mad at God <laughs> or whatever. And, and we just create an environment where we can have a real conversation because no one in this room cares where you've been or what you've done because we've all experienced that. We're thankful for our service, but we're all thankful for it. This is not a place to posture or pretend. We need to have a real conversation about who we really are and begin to move forward in faith, as you mentioned. And I think there are specific religious implications to that conversation, but that's not where you start. And I think that's where a lot of churches really struggle is they say, come to my church. We have a military ministry and, you know, we'll help you here. But a lot of folks just don't care about that and they're not interested in it. And they have real funny ideas about what that even means. It's, it's like you said, it's people that you served with or are serving with who have a faith story that can help you work through that and understand that. And the only way to deal with moral injury and some of these other issues that, you know, trauma is by understanding there's something bigger out there. There's, there's, there's a, you know, there, there's God, you know, there is bigger, there is a purpose and the purpose is bigger than me or my situation. It's the only way to move forward. And so that's where it has to start. So there's nothing offensive in that at all. In fact, I think, you know, the church has hurt the church more, more than anyone else has. Um, but it has to begin with a fundamental foundational conversation about faith. What is faith? Well, it's bigger than this. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than the situation. And thankfully it is because I can move beyond this. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. That was really good. Uh, Mr. Stonecker, I, I do have a question in regards to uh, maybe the active duty component that may be listening in on this. Um, if there's guys who say, you know what, these guys got something going on here. Like, this is what I'm hearing. I'm liking. Um, how does that make me more operational? How does that affect me in terms of how I go about conducting, you know, my mission while still serving? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And, and that that falls into the category of what the Department of Defense and we agree with would call resiliency. Um, if you don't have a foundation, then when something comes into your life, whether it's work related or outside of work, and it knocks you down, if you don't have a foundation, you're going to have a hard time getting back up. Um, people will use the analogy of having a true north. If you don't know the direction that you're moving, then when you get knocked off course, you, you never get back there, right? And this is the this is the Marine Corps like land navigation illustration. If you're off, you're off just a couple of degrees, you're going to end up in the wrong place. I was a lieutenant. I understand being off, right? Like I spent a lot of time <laughs> trying to figure out how to get from point A to point B. And sometimes you're just off by a little bit, but if you don't know where you're supposed to be going, uh, then when you get knocked off, you don't have anything to come back to. That's resilience. And for those who are serving, and, and this is so true, even in the first responder community, um, if you don't have that direction that you're going, you haven't established that, then you'll have, you're going to have a bad call or you're going to have a, a bad series of weeks with your spouse or uh, something else is going to happen. And you've got to have the ability to bounce back to a predetermined point. That's resiliency. And the military talks about this. Department of Defense talks about the four pillars of resiliency. And I appreciate the effort. I'm not sure the Department of Defense fully understands what all that means, particularly when it comes to the spiritual pillar of resiliency. Um, 
but that's that's what it is. It's being resilient. It's it's a predetermined direction. Going back to what I told you about my story, um, I think I was able to move through that a little faster on the front end, um, the destructive part, because there was direction. I did have a church established, a church family established. My wife uh, is a person of faith and my extended family. And so even though I'd gotten knocked down pretty hard, I had the ability because of what had happened before that to, to realign and begin moving forward. So that's what it is. I mean, we talk about resiliency in, in terms of resiliency is predetermining. It's making a predecision about what you're going to do when you find yourself in a difficult situation. And particularly for those who are serving, have served, um, first responder community, determining this is who I am, understanding my, my true identity. It's beyond the uniform. It's beyond the job. Um, I have a direction that I'm traveling and I'll travel that direction in spite of what may happen in my life. And when difficult things come and they will, it's going to take a process in time. I'm not saying this is easy, but you have a target, you have a goal and uh, it keeps people moving forward. Um, we found in the, in the first responder community, for sure, police officers, for sure, that this has extended even their ability to continue working. Uh, so many you know, men and women who are serving our communities, they just throw their hands up and go forget it. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm doing anymore, but I know that I'm overwhelmed. And so this, this helps with that as well. If that gets to your question. No, that was really good. That was really, really good. Yeah. I, uh, you know, whenever we talk about resiliency, at least from like my perspective and from, you know, my education and understanding, I always look at it as, as a biological frame, meaning that, you know, adverse childhood effects, you know, for some of us who have, you know, four or more, you know, which, I don't know if you're familiar with ACEs, but um, in 95 through 97, there was a series of studies that were done in California around 17,000 participants. And what they found was that uh, some of the participants that were being assessed in a clinic uh, had a series of reportings. So I think the original finding was for some odd reason, uh, 40%. So there was this obesity clinic, people were losing the weight. But then all of a sudden, they would just stop mid-track after having such great progress. Well, through a series of questionnaires and assessments, they found that, and it was by accident, they found that 40% uh, of these individuals um, were you know, sexually abused growing up. Mm -hmm. And so that those early childhood effects had affected uh, the long-term implications of overall health and daily living. And so whenever I approach, you know, uh, resilience to the biological frame, I always look at it as, all right, there's some people who have a little bit more of it, who have some people who have a lot of it. Mm. Um, but it really, it doesn't. So essentially, it's not just, it's not the trauma that some, some, for some reason, you really see it after the trauma happens, you're able to bounce back right away. But then you have compounding effects that impact you. And that over time, that resilience zone, it ends up uh, decreasing. And over time, by the time you get to, you know, the physiological effects of, of aging, and I'm getting there, I'm, I'm going to be 35. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm feeling, you know, the changes, you know, I'm not able to run. Yeah, just, just wait, just wait. <laughs> I'm not able to run as long as like I used to. You guys make me feel really good. <laughs> 35. Wow. 
Hey, but hey, well, when you, you know, three tours, what is that? You know, Marine Corps dog mm-hmm. years, you know, mm-hmm. I'm technically like 50 or 60 right now. But uh, no, <laughs> but just looking at it through the biological frame, I, I don't think we have a, I don't think we can really truly say that we have a proper understanding of, of resilience and how to actually uh, pave the way for how we look at that in terms of integrating it within, whether it's the, the operational scope or whether it's just our daily living. And so, so that's good. That was, that was really good. It answered quite a bit of my question and, and, and just the overall frame of resilience is just more than just the biology of who we are uh, to an extent it goes into the metaphysics of, of what it is that we're actually talking about here. And some, some of those things yeah. we can't measure um, with metrics, it takes something more. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's a great book. Um, I'm sure you guys have read it. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, Victor Frankl wrote the book. And if you're not familiar with it, take a look at it. It's an easy read. It's super interesting. Victor Frankl was a psychiatrist. Um, I believe he's Austrian, was Austrian, but uh, also Jewish. So during World War II, he was interred in a concentration camp. His wife, an unborn child in another concentration camp, they died. He did not. So for like four years, he was in a concentration camp. And man's search for meaning, a lot of it is him observing and and asking the question, why is it that some people do really well in this situation and some people don't? (laughs) And it's a simple question, but as a psychiatrist, he was in his early 20s, trying to figure this out. He wrote about it and um, incredible book, but he talks about how really it comes down to a decision in so many ways. There are those who decide (laughs) because that's the one freedom, he says, that can't be taken from you. Man's power to decide. They can take every other freedom, but they can't take that from you. And there were some that decided in spite of my circumstance, I'm going to push through this. I'm going to do well. There's something beyond this. I need to get past this. They, they, they held on to hope and others did not. Two people in the exact same situation, dealing with the exact same things. Some hopeful got through that, moved on. Others didn't. What was the decision? Uh, Victor Frankl, he spent a lot of time talking about this, but he, he boils it down to a decision. It, they decided <laughs> that they were going to move forward and they did. It wasn't their circumstances. It wasn't what was being done to them. It wasn't what was happening in the world. It wasn't the loss. That's not what determined how they would respond. They had to determine how they would respond. And man, it's huge. There's another great book um, that I talk about um, called uh, The Anatomy of Courage. And uh, The Anatomy of Courage was written by Lord Moran, who was Winston Churchill's personal physician until Churchill died. But a surgeon, his first tour in the military was during World War I. He spent a lot of time in the trenches, asked a similar question to Frankel. Uh, why are some people in this situation courageous and others absolutely are not? He talked about shell shock, which is what we today would call, of course, post-traumatic stress. And he asked, what, what's the difference between these people? Same situation, same environment. Um, and, and he broke it down. Great book, The Anatomy of Courage. But in the foreword, <laughs> he sums up the book. He says, really, a man of character in peace is a man of courage in war, I think is how the statement goes. Mm-hmm. A man of character in peace is a man of courage in war. The language was different in 1947 or whenever he wrote that book. But what that says to me is resiliency is built before the event takes place. What Frankel would communicate is these people who were positive, who had hope, they were that way before this environment. This, this didn't determine who they were. And to your point, um, something like seven out of 10 of our students, men and women sexually abused as child, as children. I mean, that's a trauma they've carried with them. Uh, and then the military trauma and all the other stuff they're dealing with. 
there is a biological factor absolutely to resilience but that doesn't steal from us our ability to decide how we're going to move forward and i think that's what a lot of this comes down to is do you want to get help <laughs> well you can and maybe that's a faith approach maybe that's a clinical approach w whatever the case there are resources available but you have to decide that you're not going to be the victim you're not going to be the 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 net product of what's happened to you and instead you're going to in a resilient sense, take control and begin moving forward. So that's a great point. Yeah, it's it's not a biologically predetermined or, you know, in any other way. There's so much at work there, of course. Oh, yeah. Adversity is not destiny. And uh, that's one thing I love about studying at least resilience from the biological frame is that, you know, so I'm a, I'm a philosophy and religion major. Um, I love studying that stuff. Um, grew up in that frame. But one of the things that we look at is, is how the epigenetic spectrum, right, the, the way that our, our body uh, processes genes, how that changes as a result of introducing new and novel uh, things. And I think one of the, the other pieces that I like to introduce to guys whenever I do, whether it's like peer work, peer to peer stuff, is that, you know, we, we harp a lot on discrediting this idea of religion, faith and spirituality. But really what science is really coming around and saying is that somehow these religious properties like meditation, fasting, these components that create uh, our ability to either widen our resilient zone or decrease it um, are fruitful. Um, just look at meditation, fasting, and whether it's some type of prayer, right? All those things lead to things like autophagy, which um, is, you know, within six hours, your body begins to uh, essentially... Uh, dispose of all the cellular waste. It improves cognitive function. And so your overall health and wellness uh, essentially is impacted just within that frame of 24 hours. Yeah. And so it's expanded. So it allows you to overcome maybe those biological factors that were bothering you. And it makes you that much more susceptible to becoming uh, more resilient. But yeah, that's I love all that stuff because it allows you to see clearly uh the effects that it's not it's not bs this is there's something to it mm. yeah good uh, there's uh something that ron costella brought up at uh the last uh, resilience meeting uh, veterans resilience project meeting and uh, i'd like to touch on that right now you know his his point was how do we get to these veterans before their problems deteriorate into something that requires professional help? Um, not an easy question to answer because connecting with these veterans, getting them to ask for help has been harder than Chinese arithmetic, as you guys know. <laughs> so two things that I mentioned him was one, this faith-based approach, if we can get them early in the process, you know, like when they first get out of the service or what have you, they're faced with this enormous transition problem. Um, and then the other is through our local businesses, uh, two ways we can get to them early in the process before their stuff deteriorates. Uh, so I'm interested in, uh, in how um, we could make this faith-based approach uh, uh, more meaningful in getting to them um, early in, in, in the process. What do you guys do out there 
uh, at Mighty Oaks uh, to get to them early in the process. If we wait for them to come to us, my point is it's too late. They're already in trouble, you know? Yeah, agreed. So we've done a couple of things. We've, first of all, we've uh, developed some resources. Um, uh, we got a, a small book, about 10,000 words called, um, what's it called? <laughs> the Path to Resiliency. I told you it's early. I'm starting to, it's starting to get it together, but The Path to Resiliency. Um, and that's a book that we sell for like $10 a piece on our website and on Amazon. It costs us like 60 cents to produce. And the reason we charge $10 and a lot of people buy cases of them is so that we can give them out. We've given out close to 200,000 of those Path to Resiliency books. And it talks about exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, wrote another little book called The Truth About PTSD, very similar vein, about 10,000 words, small book. We overcharge for it so that we can give out, um, give those out. I think we've probably given out more than 200,000 between the two of those resources. One of the places that we give the path to resiliency is at Marine Corps Boot Camp. And we've worked very hard with the active duty units. And our message needs to change a little bit to fit within the context that the military has established. But we have, because our network is all veterans. And so everyone knows somebody who's still serving or you know, combat leaders, military leaders, unit leaders. And so we have had the opportunity to go and speak on resiliency at bases. I mean, we've spoken to hundreds of thousands of active duty service members, bases, conferences, events. This is over the last 12 years. So this is a long period of time, but, um, and that's been a great opportunity for us to get people when they're on the front end of some of this and give out those resources. But through those connections, we've also gotten to Marine Corps boot camp. We've gotten to some of the other A schools for the military where we can have these conversations and leave behind a resource that points to our organization, but it gives some you know, steps. Here's 12 things you can do to be spiritually resilient. Um, so that's, that's a lot of what we've done is leaned into the resiliency piece on the active duty side. Some of it is on the front end of active duty service. So before you've ever had one thought about hurting yourself or dealt with any of this trauma, we're putting resources into your hands. We're having conversations. Um, I did a talk this Friday, this last Friday, um, with 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, a lot of young Marines. I mean, young Marines. <laughs> and I talked about legacy, and I talked about resiliency, and I talked about your life. And and some, some of those young people looked at me like, this guy's crazy. That's okay, but I'm having the conversation before they need to deal with it. So that's a big part of it, I think, is not simply focusing on the veteran community, but asking, how can we get to the active duty community? And maybe that is, you know, a few at a time, but then they recommend to their units. And we, we continue to work with the active duty community because, again, my experience has been trauma aside. We could talk about trauma all day where a lot of veterans get lost is in the transition process. They may have experienced trauma, but if they're still in the military, they're surrounded by people who can support them and encourage them. And it makes sense. And, you know, they're in this box. Once they get out of that box, everything changes. So working to get to the active duty folks before they transition out. And so I think I, the military is trying to do that. Um, I just don't know that they're doing it well. So we need to be available for that. Can I uh, interrupt for a second here? So this hits a nail right on the head with me. Uh, Bill and, and Jose know I've been saying this very same thing um, for the longest time. This transition 
um, losing their tribe and making yep. that transition. That's those are the first two things you hear from these guys um, when they get out. I don't care if you're man, woman, right. uh, how long you've been in, what rank you've achieved. It doesn't matter. This transition and losing the tribe are the two main issues. And uh, tell me what you think of this idea. Uh, complaint I hear is that they they face this transition unprepared. The military uh, offers them a two two week course. Some uh, say it was helpful, but most say it was not. That they they're totally unprepared when they come out. They're on their own, and they've lost their tribe. They don't have that support structure anymore. There are things in the Marines like the Marine for Life program. But that's distant. That's something yep. they do online. They don't have anybody locally to see face to face. Correct. So if you look to the military to make a change in this, well, there's a conundrum there. They mm. a they want to retain these people, and 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 b they they have to engage warriors. They, they're not into the weakness part of this, you mm. know. So when it comes time that a guy says, "I've had enough. I'm leaving." It's almost as if they let them go. They drop them. So my thought process is uh, we, have mil we have veterans who don't necessarily trust anybody who hadn't walked a mile in their boots, you know. Yep. So civilians uh, are on the fringe. But it's that society you're trying to integrate into. You need civilians more than you ever need them, needed them before. They're the ones who have the key. Uh, to make the transition. Your fellow veterans maybe can show you a path to get through that, but you need to learn the civilian yeah. way. I think, this is my opinion, I think we need people who pick, who can be represented in these two-week classes, who've been there, done that, veterans who've made the transition successfully and are thriving in a civilian culture, and people from business who can offer the goods and services that they need to integrate. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. Um, so I think the training that the military does, like philosophically, the military does things because they're on a checklist and they need to get through that checklist. And so unfortunately, that translates over to even, you know, the out-processing, whatever the various branches do to process out. I think those processes are good for explaining. These are the resources available to you in terms of, you know, healthcare and here's what you need to do financially and all these things. But when it comes to actual care for you as a human, you as a person, you and your transition, um, it's not that people don't care. It's just that it, that's a, you're leaving, as you mentioned, you're leaving, you're transitioning out and Marine for life. We'll call you. We'll, we'll send you emails and texts, but what's the connection there? And so, yes, it is people in the community that are going to make the difference. I 100% agree with that. I'll say two things and, to that. And, and that's where the faith-based piece can come in as well. You know, right there. Yeah. And I agree with that. I, I think that's, that's the whole thing. This is complete aside to this conversation, but this is why I'm not a huge fan of military ministry in church. <laughs> Because I think military ministry, in some some ways, it it like I want to use the right word. Be careful. It, it takes military people who need to integrate into the larger church body and into the community, and it puts them in their own room and says, "Okay, you guys are over there, right?" 
So I think we need to avoid that. And, and that's what you're talking about. But I'll say two things. One, it's going to take military veterans to help those who are transitioning out to bridge. So people in the community want to help veterans. We live at a great time in a great country for helping veterans. I mean, that's what people want to do. But veterans then stand back here and say, well, that's not for me. They haven't served all these things that we hear. It's going to take a veteran to go, no, let me introduce you to my friend in the community yeah. who owns a business, who wants to help you, or in the church, who wants to help you, who wants to encourage you. So it's both. It's not one or. And, and I'll say the other thing. And again, you know, this may be the most unpopular thing that I say here, and you can all dismiss this if you want. But I think veterans have got to get past who they are and what they did. You're not, you're unique, you're special. We're so grateful for your service, but your problems, your issues, your traumas, they're not unique. And there are people who didn't serve who can help you, <laughs> but you have to let them help you. And so there is a mindset shift that needs to take place. And again, I think it's veterans that can help this mindset, mindset shift take place. But man, some of the best people in the world who help people like me are not people who've ever served in the military, but hate, they, they know how to help. And we need to make those connections. I, there are 6,000 veteran suicides every year for the last 15 years. No change in sight. Yeah. Not, nothing's happening. So whatever we're mm -hmm. doing doesn't work. But what is 50% of this problem? 50% of the problems is exactly what you're talking about right now. If veterans don't step up and ask for help, if veterans don't right. reach out to the civilian right. community, they're part of the problem. That, that's 100% right. So let me throw another number at you, 45,000. That's the number of veteran nonprofits in the United States, 45,000. <laughs> so if, if resourcing was the problem, I don't know what else we do to resource. So yeah. resources are available. Now, what that means is a lot of nonprofits don't do a very good job. <laughs> a lot of them aren't good at what they do. There are a lot of problems. I'm not saying that's a perfect situation. But to your point, veterans can get help, but they've got to reach out and get help. And maybe that starts with going to a church and a pastor who doesn't know how to help them and can't go to another one. <laughs> don't, don't stop reaching out for that help. But veteran, you need to understand that when you are serving, you know, Jose, you said this, I don't want to let my guys down. Well, after you put the uniform away, not letting your guys down means you're not going to take your life. You're not going to hurt yourself. You're not going to wreck uh, what you have because you've got people you still need to serve and you need to go get them and you need to connect them to the resources. This is what it is to me to be a veteran. It's why I do the work that I do. It's not because, um, you know, I couldn't do something else. It's because as someone who served, I still have a responsibility to serve those who have served, who are serving, who I served with. And part of that, Tony, to your point, is making the connection. <laughs> Look, man, I know you're struggling with this. <clears throat> I don't know a veteran in the world who can help you with that, but I know some civilians who can, and they want to. Let me connect you. We provide, we don't provide, we connect graduates to counselors. Some of our counselors are veterans. Most of them are not, but they're all very qualified, and they offer all of their service for as long as it takes for free because they want to help, but you've got to get past that hurdle of, well, they didn't wear a uniform. Well, maybe they didn't, but they've probably done some other stuff that you haven't done. Let them help you. And so, yeah, yeah I, I, that's my soapbox. I, I need to get off of it, but you're absolutely right. We need to do our part. 
but veteran, if you're hurting, man, you've got to reach out and get some help and help is available. Thank you for that. That was good. So gentlemen, we have reached the one hour uh, portion. Um, it, I, don't, I, I put two hours just in case, you know, we, we decided to go over, but we don't have to commit to the two hours. Um, is there any like last nuggets or do you want to continue this conversation with a few more questions? I, I, have, I have one quick one. Is there anything um, that you can give us um, that would help us as we move on, to, you know, like Mighty Oak programs or something like that, that we can look at and help formulate what we do here in our uh, Veterans Resilience Project? I'm willing to to help walk through that or talk through that in any you know any capacity that you'd like to. Um, also, you know, and this is something an offer I make all the time is since it doesn't cost anything, um, I think you need to view it. I would encourage you to view it as a resource for you. And you bump into people. This may be the starting point. One of the, the things we try to do, <clears throat> we have I think right now we have 1,200 or something applications in queue. So we're constantly triaging who needs to come and when can they come and all those things. If you are being referred to us by someone that we trust, you know, Jose calls me up or texts me and says, I've got a guy, uh, I served with him or I met him and he needs to come to the program. He will move to the top of the list for one very simple reason. I know when he's done with us, he goes back to Jose and there's a built-in accountability and follow-up. And so, you know, for you guys, you could view us the same way. We're going to send them off, but then we're going to get them back. They've already had some of these conversations and we can keep moving forward together. Do you have people, uh, I mean, you're national, right? Correct. So do you, I mean, do you get people who are really down the rabbit hole and need help immediately? We get people who are checking out of an inpatient um, program because of suicidal ideation on Friday and they end up with us on Monday. Now we are, there are a couple things. A person has to be stable enough to actually, you know, function on their own to attend our program. Um, <laughs> I always say they can't be uh, detoxing, although, man, we often have people who are detoxing because they can't get drugs while they're with us. So, um, so there are a couple of things they need to be stable enough, but if they are, they've come out of that program and they're hurt or, you know, they call us up and say, um, I think about killing myself all the time, taking my life. We're going to get them into a program as soon as we can. And that may mean bumping someone. So 35 weeks. So we have something going on almost every week of the year. And uh, we very often get people in on very short notice. So would you put, uh, if you had someone who was in need of professional help, uh, would you, and they happen to be here in the Cape Fear region, would you mm -hmm. place them in an organization like mine where we provide that? We're partnered with Coastal Horizons who provides professional help oh for sure we would definitely you know someone coming back like it's like if someone's a part of our program i know they're going back to your community and i know you guys are there 100 <laughs> percent because it's it's a trust issue again forty-five thousand organizations that say they help well, most of them don't obviously and so the ones that do we need to we've got a lot of organizations that we would say hey i know these guys you need to work with them so yeah 100 percent. so jose could you get my contact information to him Yes, sir. I will. Um, Great. But there was a, Bill, you had something you wanted to say? Yeah, I just, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, Jeremy, that in the printed literature that you hand out, um, do you have anything in there specifically for, for instance, 
regardless of the denominations you have clergy or, or whatever for the actual parishioners to understand how to approach a conversation with a neighbor or loved one somebody they just met a co-worker whatever and what i'm getting at is a lot of times people see something is off but they don't say anything because they're afraid to or don't know what to say and you get that standard response all the time like hey uh hey tony how you doing i'm good which we all know yeah. in our vernacular is no that's not how you yeah. say it but there's there's a lot of stuff out there rephrasing these questions that if people knew how to approach a situation when it's like hey if you um i haven't talked to jose in like a week and you know i, I i'm just not you know i'm, I'm kind of concerned but get on the phone hey jose are you okay Instead of saying, hey, Jose, we got this fishing trip coming up here and yeah. we're looking for it on here. You've got the tackle for that. <laughs> so if you rephrase things to get them to think about something other than that dark space that they're in or about to go into, and you based on a response, then we know where and how quickly to act and so forth. Where a lot of times, you know, people just don't know what to say other than, are you okay? Are you yeah. feeling good? And that's just not what, you know gets gets the proper response and and for it actually if you kind of understand where i'm going with this yeah that's good um we've talked about this a lot i have not written on that particularly but if you go to our website there is a place on the top i'm trying to visualize it and it says watch um, underneath underneath that watch tab are podcasts uh videos a lot of stuff that we've done over the years and that conversation has been a big part of it. So there are a lot of resources there that have these conversations, interview veterans. And so a lot of it is available. Um, what I typically do when I'm asked that, though, is I'll send someone to another organization called Warrior's Journey. Um, Warrior's Journey, they have written on just about everything and they're faith, faith focused, but they have tabs on their website that say if you're a parent, if you're a pastor, if you're a, um, you know, a friend here resources, written resources for you to check out and understand how to have these conversations. So Warrior's Journey is incredible. And that's one of the reasons I haven't spent time writing about it is because they've done such a great job on that. So we have a lot of videos, a lot of podcasts, a lot of conversations. And then I would push people over there to find a lot of incredible written work that yeah. explains. And, much and we, we mentioned this about. earlier, you know, the kind of the train the trainer. So if we can get yep. to the, here's another way of, hey, now you've got tons right. of members within a congregation or whatever it is that they have this understanding and how to actually approach them. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yes, have sir. you heard, have you heard of psych armor? Psych armor, org. I don't com. think I have, but I'll check them out. I don't, I don't think I have. I'll take a they look. They have though. like 250 courses that they offer online, like 15 minute courses and they're all for free. Psych so armor. Check them out as well. I'm, I'm going to check out this Warrior's Journey. I haven't heard of that one. Psych Armor. Okay, got it. Oh, there it is. Got it. I'll take a look at that later. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Mr. Stalnecker, if there's any way that we can support you um, in your endeavors with Mighty Oaks or just your own personal, um, my email, um, my platforms are always open. Um, I would like to stay in contact just in case maybe anyone from the Cape Fear region For sure. uh, does attend your uh, uh, program that they have yep. something to fall back on as well. That's great. Thank you, Jose. I appreciate you doing this too. Great conversation. And uh, I hope this will be an encouragement to folks who are listening. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate Thank you. it.